Well, Pastor Terry, it is a pleasure to have you back for a third time, third time. on the podcast. Man. First time we talked Gen Z, uh, we talked next gen theory, yeah. world things. There's there's all sorts of things going on. Today we have an awesome topic that we're going to get to, but I did want to mention that we just released a next gen series on the yes. River Valley Network YouTube channel. Can you tell us what that was about for and sure. uh, maybe what people can expect if they want to go check that out on the channel? 100%. You know, it was in response to some of the things we talked about on our previous uh, talking church podcast mm-hmm. with like the future of the church, Web3, Gen Z, things that we can expect in regard to disruption and digital transformation. And so we've gotten a lot of feedback about it. And I said, you know what, let's just make it a series to where we talk about the future of the church, what's coming in the future of the church, digital disruption and how to navigate it. And so uh, we just kind of poured it all out and curated it. And it's going to, it's an amazing series. And it's one that anybody in our network could use themselves. Yeah, absolutely. It's free. It's on the YouTube channel. Yep. Um, three videos are about 20 minutes each and uh, you dive in. So hopefully that can be a resource to next gen yeah. pastors or maybe just any pastor that wants to hear more of your wisdom. Um, <laughs> but they're doing that right now. And so I uh, texted you last night and said, uh, let's talk about postmodernism. Yeah. And immediately I Googled what yeah. that means. <laughs> and so I think yeah. I know about it now and yes. I'm ready to be an yes. expert on the topic. That's how most people do it. Yeah. <laughs> is they're like, oh, I read some, a thing <clears throat> online and uh, now I'm an expert on it. I saw yeah. a, um, when the, the war in uh, Ukraine and Russia kind of was, you know, really growing. Obviously, there's been tensions for years, mm-hmm. but I saw somebody post something and they said, guys, uh, big announcement. I've decided to hang up my um, immunology expertise to now be an expert in Eastern European affairs. <laughs> and obviously a joke to all these people on social media. Yeah. They think they know everything about Absolutely. everything. Absolutely. And so I thought that was funny. But in reality of this, I, I, the reason why I want to talk about this, I actually was reading a book about this recently, and it, it basically was all about postmodernism. It was not a Christian book, uh, but it had so many threads into what is happening in the church, what's happening in America, what's happening in the West. And I think a lot of people maybe are uncertain of what's happening, where we're going, what this looks like, how this impacts the church. And so I'd love to talk about what that means, uh, and then there's a lot of follow-up questions to that. But when you think about postmodernism, you know, that even that term is a little bit obsolete now. That's yeah. um, really more of what was happening in you know 60s, 70s, 80s. Yeah. But that's led to yeah. what's happening now. What what are some high-level thoughts, and then we can yeah. kind of dive down deeper. Well, postmodernism, I think, for all of our listeners, is truly divorcing yourself from a single truth and delving into pr- pluralism. Multiple truths, not objectivity, but subjectivity. Um, everything is very relative. Let's not really grasp onto anything big, but let's kind of hold all things loosely. And it's truly not a mark of progression in society, but it's a mark of affluence and wealth. Sure. I mean, you would look at ancient Rome, who was arguably um, in their most affluent state at their pinnacle, right? And postmodernism was called something different in that time, mm-hmm. but it was still ran, run rampant. And when you're in a time of struggle as a society and a time of persecution or in a time of poverty as a society, generally you don't have time to play around with multiple truths. You're like, what is the truth? What can I hang my hat on? And so oftentimes we look at postmodernism as it's an advancement in culture. And now we're the most advanced we've ever been when truly we're just on another cycle of it. And I guarantee you society is going to go back to identifying the one single core truth that they can hang their hat on. So with postmodernism, especially today, so let's talk about the cycle of the 60s, the 70s, has really, um, uh, really started to show, its, show itself with millennials. 
you know, to where I don't really want to hang my hat on anything because if I do, that means I miss out on everything else. So mm-hmm. what tr- started out as a search for truth ended up as a fear of missing out. So yeah. I'm not going to, that same energy just translated to that. And now with Gen Z, it's like, no, let's be super practical. Let's be pragmatic. Let's determine what the one truth is. Let's define what success is. And so now we're starting to slowly see the pendulum swing back. But postmodernism really did a number, I think, on Christianity mm-hmm. in this way. And I see it with the next generation because the next generation becomes the product of the thought that the previous generation has. And with uh, postmodernism and Christianity, it also said, but when you think about God, there's not really one truth. You ever hear about like, this is what the Bible means to me. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, 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 bro. This is what the Bible means. This is how it applies to you. But it means one thing and applies in a few different ways. But a lot of people with postmodern thought felt I could take the Bible and make it mean something different to me based on the season of life that I'm in. And we've had a whole generation think about the Word of God, especially in the West, in that way, which has led us to a post-Christian time. And if you want to look at postmodernism to post-Christianity, post-Christianity takes place when you embrace postmodernism, and it unhinges you from Christianity, and no longer what you serve as Christian, but a, a flavor of it. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, and and kind of the definition, as you talked about, the the there's no no absolute truth. And I think right. the society has divorced itself from that idea that there there is an absolute truth about things. And of course, there's some objectivity around many ideas. Yeah. But I think the key that was happening in this time, and obviously you look back to the French philosophers who kind of started this all the way into millennials and Gen Z. Can you talk about that intersection of, there's now, you, you mentioned Gen Z demanding or, or looking for absolute truth or looking for certainty. Yeah in the midst of the millennials yeah. who kind of loved the idea. It, it went back oh, to yeah. the hippie generation from postmodernism. Yep. Um, what's the clash there? Do you, is yeah. there a clash in, in culture? Is there a clash in church? Or is it or is it just grasping at things? I think it's grasping at things. I like how you said how this generation is looking for clarity or certainty, especially in an age of disruption that we felt over the last three years with pandemics, politics, social injustices, you name it, wars and rumors of wars. Like now people are like, oh no, I don't have time to play with this. You, I, I need clarity. I need certainty. I need to know what's around the corner. I think the clash really is the clash of convenience, if I can put it that way. When it's convenient for me to have a plural uh, pluralism of thought, I'm going to have it. Sure. But when stuff is hitting the fan, I don't need a pluralism. I need, I need certainty. And so I think the clash is a clash of convenience. And because of that, our faith as Christians sometimes as we move from postmodern to post-Christian is often hanged, hung on what's most convenient for us. Mm-hmm. And there's a problem there because in Western Christianity, sometimes we don't die to ourselves. We think as Christians, we have rights. We think as Christians that we have uh, the ability to make our life our best life now, mm-hmm. when in reality, we're dead to ourselves yeah. and alive in Christ. So dead people have no rights. Dead people can't live their best life now. I can only live Christ's life now. Mm-hmm. I can only live Christ through me. And he laid down his rights. And so what I think the clash of convenience has done is it's divorced us from the ability to be dead to ourselves and alive to Christ. Mm-hmm. And it's limited our power and our effectiveness in this world. Yeah, with that I- idea, you look in the New Testament, a huge part of the New Testament is the theology of suffering. Mm-hmm. And how, how do you how do we get that message across in to, you know, let's focus here on younger millennials, older Gen Z, yeah. who are, again, looking for this. Maybe they never, they, their parents were older millennials um, or, or you know, younger Gen X, and they're in this world of, okay, there's there's no truth, there's it's, it's rights. Again, it's about 
how I feel, mm-hmm. but then how, how do you teach this? Okay, by the way, everything that you've been trying to search for <laughs> yeah. is die to yourself, yeah. suffer, yeah. and commit yourself to Christ no matter mm-hmm. what it costs you. Yeah. It's, it's a very big one, you know, 180 yeah. degree turn from yeah. maybe how they're being taught in school or everywhere else. For sure. I think in Hebrews where it says, Christ learned obedience through the things he suffered. Yo. You can't get around that passage. Yeah. You just can't. Because if he learned obedience to the things he suffered, who am I? Am I better than Christ? Mm-hmm. I'm not better than Christ. And if he had to do it, then I had to learn obedience through the school of suffering. I think we have two opposite ends of the spectrum. We have people who make themselves martyrs when God doesn't put them there. And we have people who, who think suffering is because God is not pleased with them. Mm. When truly God is, uses suffering as a vehicle to teach us obedience so that we could be vessels to accomplish the great and wonderful things that he has for us. Mm-hmm. And often that's the only thing that gets us to that place is suffering. Now, a lot of people really spiritualize suffering. They're like, it's bad. So that means God's pleased. Are you kidding me today? Yo, I'm not trying to suffer at all. But if God needs to put me there in order for, to answer a prayer that I prayed a long time ago, mm-hmm. to be God, for where I say, God, make me that man that you have created me to be. And he takes me through the school of suffering so I can learn obedience and become a vessel that's open for that, then I will submit to that process. And I don't think we can talk about suffering without talking about the plan and will of God in our lives. Mm-hmm. The plan and will of God only comes through suffering because suffering what? It causes us to die to ourselves. It, it strips away parts of us that shouldn't be there. Like I say all the time, you can't be full of God and full of yourself. Yeah. And what suffering does is it helps you to empty yourself so you can be a vessel open and ready for the plan of God. So suffering for the sake of suffering... There's, there's not much spiritual in that. Mm-hmm. There's other religions that get into suffering for the sake of suffering. Let's not go in that direction, yeah. you know, but let's get into the place to where suffering makes you, informs you, it's the potter's wheel, it's, it helps you to be molded as clay into the vessel that God can make you into. So I think when I talk to this generation, uh, younger millennials, older Gen Zs about it, man, the Gen Z is the most, one of the most purpose generation uh, driven generations out there, let's couple it with purpose because suffering has a purpose. Sure. There is a meaning to suffering. I don't need to know what it is, but I know that because Christ learned obedience through the things that he suffered, so can I, and I can become a vessel ready to carry that purpose that God has. Yeah. And that's how we need to frame it. At, at our, uh, We had a missionary with us at our Kingdom Village Banquet, and I love, he was talking about suffering, and he shared the distinction between suffering for Christ mm-hmm. and suffering for our faith versus suffering for everything else. Yeah. And something that he shared that I don't think it's talked about a lot is you don't get rewarded by God for suffering for your political beliefs, suffering right. for your your you know job, suffering for even your your civic responsibilities. Yep. God sees your suffering for the advancement of the gospel. Yep. And I think at times we've maybe misconstrued that in our search for truth. And I think you shared on other podcasts that you know, Gen Z will post something that they don't even necessarily believe so that they see the reactions of the people and mm-hmm. that can help them make the decisions. It's that a they dialogue make. for yeah, sure. Exactly. Yeah. But how, with that in mind, I do see in, in a negative way or, or a, a threat to some of the teachings that we have is, hey, we're going to stand up for what we believe in be, so that we can get, you know, people that combat us on the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not necessarily a gospel issue. No. So again, I, I'm going a bunch of different directions here, but how do we take the truth and stand up for the truth, be ready to suffer, mm-hmm. and not being those who provoke? Yeah. Yeah, I think the thing that separates that is my own ambitions and desires. You know, when I stand up for the truth, do I have an ambition to be right? Do I have a desire to be the loudest voice in the room? Do I have a desire to provoke and get enough followers on social media? Mm-hmm. That's the wrong motivation. Yeah. 
You know what I mean? When my desire is love and that people understand truth and understand Christ and have an authentic encounter with Christ so that I'm removed from it, and I then am able to stand for my faith and suffer whatever I need to suffer, Mm -hmm. then that's the proper motivation. And truly, the proper motivation is love. Without love, I mean, you're looking at 1 Corinthians, without love, none of, none of anything that you do matters. Even spiritual things don't matter if I don't have love. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's a, that's a dividing line. And we have so many Christian, quote unquote, influencers out there that are combating what's going on in culture, thinking that they're taking up the righteous cause mm-hmm. when it has nothing to do with love. It has everything to do with platform and it has everything to do with being right. And if I speak the loudest and people can't, be, can't, can't come back at me, then therefore truth has been established. No, truth is only established in love. So I have to have a desire to see the person I'm talking to have an authentic encounter with Christ. And if that's done through my suffering, then yo, let's make that happen. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah. so that's where I think suffering comes into the picture when you have your love as your lens through which you talk about those things in culture that don't um, connect with the Word of God. Mm-hmm. And that, though, I think that mentality of saying, I'm going to stand up for the things of truth and you build a platform with it leads us into post-truth t- time too. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, to so where... it's this progression of, there's obviously <clears throat> the early postmodernism of the 60s, 70s, but then it's that influenced the church a little bit later. Yep. And now you have post-church Post-truth. Post, yeah, post-Christian and then post-truth. Yeah. And post-truth happens when it's like, well, if you're saying that's the truth, then I'm going to say there is no truth. Now what are you going to say? Yeah. And post-truth really becomes a convenient mechanism for us to live any version of truth, again, the clash of convenience, any version of truth that we want. And what we have right now, right today, isn't a post-Christian era. We've been living in that for a minute. But we have a post-truth era mm-hmm. that we're living in where your truth matters. And it doesn't. If Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, then no other truth matters other than mm-hmm. Christ. And we have to, as believers, think that. We think we have replaced virtues in the church today and saying tolerance is now the highest virtue and acceptance. It is not Yeah. At, by any way, shape, or means. And yet you have a lot of believers in a post-Christian era embracing that, therefore allowing post-truth to exist. So you could have a believer a biblically-based believer and a culturally-based believer sitting in the church at the same time. And I think I said this at the last podcast. And they look the same, act the same, talk the same, smell the same, have the same worship songs on podcasts, lift their hands, they, they attend, they serve, whatever. But when you say something that's culturally triggering and it doesn't align with the truth of the cultural Christian, that cultural Christian is going to bounce and the biblical Christian is going to contextualize in the Word of God and what's going to come out is redeemed culture. Mm-hmm. And we don't know. And then when those people bounce, we're like, oh, they really weren't Christian or they really weren't that committed or they're in it for this, that or whatever. But truthfully, they dipped because we didn't do the work of biblically aligning them. We just thought, hey, you love, you agree with what we agree with because you're sitting here. Mm -hmm. And I think we experienced that when COVID happened, when George Floyd happened, when the political cycle happened, we experienced that. And your dad said this, um, our lead pastor, Pastor Rob, he said, we don't need one church, multiple locations. But we lead multiple churches in multiple locations and with a multiple, you know, um, array of beliefs and views and everything else. So post-truth, we have to really align here and know what we believe in the capital C church if we're going to meet a post-truth culture that walks through our doors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I look at the challenges ahead and I think that there's a number of ways you can go about, you know, solving obviously the yeah. the, lar- the large issue of hey how do we solve post christian post truth mm-hmm. but in the communication for as we're preaching as we're teaching as we're discipling you mentioned that example yeah. what are some of the things that maybe in your view we're missing 
so that that person isn't caught in that scenario yes. where all of a sudden they're again d- listening to the same songs, mm-hmm. you know, hearing the same messages until mm-hmm. one of those things pushes them. What what are it goes to a discipleship question, but what are some of those things that we're missing out on? Yeah, I think there are two things that we can do when we preach and one thing that we can systemize. The two things we can do as preach is we can increase biblical literacy and we can insert cultural discernment into everything. For biblical literacy, and I think it's important to understand that only 8% of consistent churchgoers, and that means coming to church once a month, that's what they call a consistent churchgoer, (laughs) reads the Bible. Sure. Once a week. 8% reads the Bible once a week. That's bonkers, right? Yeah. It means 92% love a Christian culture more than the Christ of their culture. And so here you have people who aren't biblically literate, so therefore they don't know how to take a cultural moment and contextualize it through the Word of God and walk out with redeemed culture. We need to increase biblical literacy. That means we have to backfill the knowledge gap whenever we preach. We can't assume that people understand the story of Jonah. We can't assume that people understand the story of Peter walking out of jail for free, you know? We can't assume that people know that. So we have to give deep context and lead them on the journey before we bring them into the next space. And we also need to make sure that biblical literacy is taking place outside of a message. The second thing is we need to insert cultural discernment into everything. For example, and this is a sad case of it, but when George Floyd happened in the city, there were pastors, black and white, that didn't mention it the next Sunday. Mm-hmm. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Like we need to help our people understand how to contextualize a cultural moment, filter through the word of God so they could redeem culture on the other side. And if we're not doing it, culture's doing it because culture catechizes mm-hmm. every day. It will catechize our students, it'll catechize our young people, it'll catechize our adults. It'll tell us what to think if we aren't teaching people how to culturally discern what's going on through the context of the Word of God. Again, you couldn't have that without biblical literacy. So there's two things that we always have to have whenever we preach, biblical literacy and cultural discernment. But the third thing we have to systemize is truly making discipleship discipleship. Often what we celebrate as discipleship is just enhanced relationship. Mm -hmm. It's not discipleship because discipleship breeds evangelism. Period. If you don't have a wave of evangelism, chances are discipleship isn't discipleship. Mm-hmm. And we say, well, how, how, how could those two things correlate? A big problem the church did during a postmodern era is bifurcate uh, discipleship from evangelism. We separated those two things and they shouldn't have mm-hmm. because whatever you invest your life in, you don't want to stop talking about. Yeah. Remember when you started dating your wife? <laughs> yeah. You would talk to anybody yeah. who wants to talk about her. Yep. You know what I mean? Somebody said the word dating, you're about to talk about your future yeah. wife, right? Fantasy football. I can't tell you how many dudes wouldn't shut up for three <laughs> weeks about fantasy football. Why? Because they've invested their time, their life into the franchises, the players, the histories, the stories. So if we're truly discipling people, shouldn't they not be able to shut up about Christ? Mm-hmm. Shouldn't they not? Because whatever you invest your life into comes out of you. Mm-hmm. And I think one great measure of discipleship is evangelism. And so after we increase biblical literacy and insert cultural discernment to everything, we have to make sure that our discipleship models are doing what they we think they're doing. Mm-hmm. And if they're not doing that, we need to interrogate them and we need to come up with new models where discipleship is taking place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wonder how much of the lack of evangelism in discipleship that comes, and obviously there's great churches doing great jobs. Mm-hmm. This isn't, I, I, I always dislike when any critique of anything feels like a blanket statement over every single oh, church sure. everywhere. And so, um, but I wonder if some of that is tied into the, I want to hold on to these people attitude. I want, you know, something that we yes. really try to hold 
loosely here is people in not again not in the sense of we want them to leave right. but that they could go anywhere that god could send them anywhere obviously For we sure. have a mandate uh to send 500 missionaries to plant churches to start new locations but even people who leave we always say you can leave well yeah and uh, you know there's people in the church who move we want their discipleship to go far beyond what it was 100%. when they were here why do you think there's sometimes we struggle with that you know because it's it, is it is it that personal relationship aspect? Is it we want to be liked that yeah. we don't want people to leave who who love us? Or I mean, because you yeah. look at you look at the discipleship, and I know I just asked a question, but you you look at the discipleship of Jesus, and obviously three years with these guys mm-hmm. who he invests heavily into. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Jesus dies, he rises again, mm-hmm. he says it's better than I'm leaving you, gives him the Holy Spirit, but the response is. They go. They go. They scatter. They evangelize. You know, they scatter, but and, they, they they do leave. Yeah. But they did what they were what they were invested with. They evangelized. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And to that end, I think everybody's like, well, let's hold them, let's keep them, let's whatever. And I think that's a symptom of the attractional model of church. Sure. Because and, and and let's not get it twisted. There's always a need for an attractional model every three or four generations. Churches always need an update because we always write off our best success for the last for the next thirty years and not change. I was just mm-hmm. in a context in another country where there was a great move of God thirty years ago, and the church hasn't changed in thirty years because they're living sure. off their best best success. It needs an update, right? And the attractional model won people back to the church. We yeah, needed yeah, it yeah, back. Totally. However, the thing that got us there can't stay the same, and and what the church is shifting into is from an attractional to a missional model where people want to be more on mission mm-hmm. with. The purpose and the call of God, and they want to be in churches that are being on mission. And that's what I love about our church is, I mean, almost naturally we've shifted into that model. Yeah. Now that doesn't mean get rid of the attractional things. I'm not advocating for non-excellent church. You know, yeah. let's get rid of the LEDs and smoke. Let's bring back the pews. I'm not talking about that. Mm-hmm. What I am talking about, let's not depend upon that to keep get people into heaven, but let's yeah. utilize that and then bring in that back in for missional living and missional uh, purpose in order to get our people uh, moving forward. So when I think about uh, the church not wanting to let go of people, I think that's highly a- highly attached to an attractional model. Mm-hmm. And I think we're going to see that less and less because the goal of discipleship is to send. Yeah, That is the goal. And what we want to do is we want to send our, our bullseye at River Valley Church is to send 500 missionaries onto the field. Mm-hmm. That's not going to happen without killer discipleship. Yeah, You know what I mean? Because the desire of being discipled is to go and do something with it. And so I think if we hold people loosely, but hold their discipleship information tightly, and we hold those two things in tension, I think we're going to see a great wave of evangelism and missional movements take place around the world. Yeah, no, that's so good. And I think, you know, obviously you coming from the youth, next-gen background, I don't think it's a... um, it's a mistake or a coincidence that a lot of lead pastors come from being youth pastors. And obviously it's a great breeding mm-hmm. ground for preaching, mm-hmm. discipling. But but the, the thing that just came to my mind is in youth ministry, in young adult ministry, in kids ministry, but specifically youth and young adult, you're pastoring people who then leave. Yeah, They're always leaving. There's always 100%. new people coming into your youth group. Yep. There's always people leaving. Yep. They're graduating. They're going off to college. You yep. know, even someone, you know, I did young adult ministry for a while. They, they're they in school and they graduate. Mm-hmm. And then they go, I just took a job in, in North Carolina. Yep. And you're like, oh my goodness, I just poured into you. Yep. And so I think that in a lot of ways going re, you know, whether it's a lead pastor or executive or in, whatever you do in your role, thinking about it to say, I'm stewarding this person for a season. Yes. 
what do they need to know or how can I lead them so that when they inevitably go, for whatever reason, some people are going to be a part of your church for 50 years, but yes. the, the age of that is, I wouldn't say over, but very rare now with how transient communities are, with e how easy it is to move, mm. connectivity, social media, people are moving all over, and COVID shifted that a little bit. But pastoring your church to say, when you leave, mm -hmm. what should you know? Yes. And that's something where I think we're even starting to ask that question to say, okay, we can't just pastor people and assume they're going to be here for 50 years right. of their life. Right. We have to know, okay, what what do we want people to know in their first couple of years? Mm -hmm. What do we want people to know in their first you know, 10? We even say, it was, hey, go on a global team in your first, I think it was five or six years. Yep. And we've moved that to like, as soon as possible, Get on two years, team. go yes. on a global team. Yes. And um, it, it helps people to see wh what are some other maybe things that you've seen, whether it's in our church or other churches around the world that are maybe focusing more on that and maybe not directly, but indirectly realizing mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. we're not pastoring these people forever in this community anymore, yeah. but we are stewarding them for however yeah. long God lets us. Yeah. I think uh, there's a couple, there's three things that immediately come to mind. And, I, and I'm noticing in churches around the world, discipleship is not only just discipleship and creating a foundation in the word, but vocational discipleship. What does what I've invested look like in the marketplace, in the workplace, in my schools and whatever? And there's equal energy being given to, I'm not only going to get you in a small group and disciple you in the things of God, but I'm also going to get you into a space or a cohort with other individuals who are now doing this in the marketplace and talking about the external working of the internal investment. We got to give same energy to that vocational discipleship, how to be a, how to be salt and light in the world as much as we do on the internal discipleship. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. The second piece um, is uh, leadership development and understand, and that is a broad spread. But I, I believe what, like when I just said leadership development, somebody thought about a microphone in the stage. If you thought about of a microphone in the stage, when I said leadership development, that's the lowest form of leadership development. That doesn't do anything but entitle people. When we talk about leadership development, we're talking about access and opportunity. So not only am I investing in them discipleship-wise and showing them, hey, this is how this looks like when you flesh it out as salt and light in the world around you, but I'm also going to give you an opportunity here in the church through access, giving you a place at the table, an opportunity to exercise your gifts so you're confident when you go out. I remember when I was younger and I heard from pastors and leaders to go do X, Y, and Z in the world, and then they release you from service, and I'm like, how do I do this? Yeah. That leadership development, exercising your gifts and creating space in the church outside of, outside of just ushering and parking lot, which are great, but there might be other gifts and, and talents that people need to bring to the table in, in, in order to exercise them. Creating those spaces are key. So the first is vocational discipleship. The second is consistent leadership development. And the third is leading them into a firsthand encounter with Christ. Mm -hmm. Often the church leads people into a secondhand encounter with Christ. And again, not broad spread, but often when we preach, we tell people the word of God through our perspectives and what God's revealed to us. And like Samuel, who went to Eli and said, hey, did you call me? Like when Samuel fell asleep by the Ark of the Covenant, he heard the voice of God say, Samuel, Samuel. He goes to Eli three times. Did you call me? The third time, Eli said, that's the voice of God. Go back and say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. I would bet, venture to guess if Eli was a pastor today, he would get up and be like, yo, God's speaking to you. All right, I'm going to go listen to what God said. And then I'm going to tell you how I think you need to run that out. That's a secondhand experience of Jesus. And mm -hmm. oftentimes when we preach, we aren't teaching people how to go to God and say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. But we're teaching them how to do it through our lens. And the problem with, and there's nothing wrong with that, 
But at the end of the day, then they need us in order to navigate the future instead of going to Christ to do so. Yeah. And so we need to hold those three things in tension in order to help people successfully navigate that sending component. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's something that I've observed so well, even in what we try to accomplish. And again, we fall short all the time. We we There's things that we look at and go, man, we wish we would have done a better job of that. But some examples that I thought of is, again, going on a global team yes. is not we tell people all the time and the reason why we call them global teams we've said this before but it's not because you're go- like a mission trip it sometimes feels and again if you, if you call a mission trip it's yeah. all good but we're going for a week to change people's lives yeah yeah <laughs> and that's yeah. when we're going to change them mm-hmm. and and what we know is that you're going to hear god's voice to be changed yes. And yes. if we can do good ministry while we're there, we're going to do our best mm-hmm. to do good ministry. Mm-hmm. But what we observe is that when somebody goes, they change. Yes. And their perspective on on church, on Jesus, on the world, on missions, on everything changes. And so that's why we, we mm-hmm. call them global teams. But I think about even plan, vision, dream. It's something we talk about with our, our giving. We don't say, here's how much you should give. Plan, what could you plan? Yep. What could you believe for? And what's the dream that God yep. could what's ask? What's the dream it's, goal? It's giving people this opportunity to hear from God. Yep. And I think that in the leadership development side of things, it's what is, as we train people, what can I teach that's the aha moment? Yes. But then what's the application to your point? How do I do this? And then what's the next step of what do I need to do yep. that, that the pastor can't do for me, that yep. my small group leader can't yep. do for me? And I think... For all of us, I mean, our whether it's Bible school professors or it's parents that did, those are the moments that define us. I remember yeah. when I moved across the world, did an internship in Beirut, Lebanon, and I had really never cooked my own food and really never did yeah. my own laundry. Right. And because I, I went to North Central, it was 30 minutes. My mom would beg me to bring home laundry, which was funny. She's like, I don't feel like a mom anymore. I need to do your laundry. I'm like, yeah, good by me. Yeah, fine, um, I'll be back later but, on. So then I was gone and I didn't have anybody to do anything. And I grew because I was yeah. by myself. Yes. And so there's other times where I think and as pastors that we are coddling. And I think that's even part of this post-Christian to where, no, 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 it's yeah. okay. Like, don't worry about what's going yeah. on. And I think you even saw that in, in as the postmodern culture yes. was taking over yeah. the 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 world, yeah. the church was like, la, 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 like, don't worry about it. We can't be we, them. Yeah. We'll just be more us. We yeah. became more of a bubble. We became Jerusalem before they were exiled. That's yeah, what we became. Exactly. But then yeah. by, the, by the time that postmodernism actually took over and now we're into what we talked about before, it was, well, you haven't addressed any of this stuff, right. so now we're actually going to go learn it. And that's where you see the deconstruction movement. You see all these things, people saying, none of this was ever addressed for me when I was a kid about all these mm-hmm. questions that I think the church has a really good answer. And Dr. Tennyson said this on the podcast a few weeks ago, but he said, um, people assume if you don't have the answer, that maybe the church doesn't have the answer. Yeah, And I think that the reality is, no, the, the church, the Bible, the word of God oh, has absolutely. the answer, but if we're not willing to hit the nail on the head and address it to your point of cultural mm-hmm. issues that are happening, not in a combative or, hey, I'm going to go in there just to poke at people, yeah. but to say, no, we're, we are responsible yeah. to live in this. Yeah. So yeah, I, I shared a lot there, but I'd love, to, I'd love to give you kind of a last word here on, I've asked yeah. you a lot of questions on... A lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, wh- what maybe is something that I didn't ask that you'd say, hey, this is something I'd love to touch on, or this is something that would be beneficial to to close with that was maybe a question that I didn't ask or sure, thought that you had throughout sure. the time. Um, I want to add one point of thought, one thought I have, and then I'll answer that question. One thought I had was 
if you're a church leader, like every, it's incredibly hard to build people to not stick around. Like every other area of life, every yeah. brand wants you brand loyal, right? Yeah. Everybody wants you on their social media platform. And everything they do is to build their brand. Yeah. The church is an antithesis to this in that we build so that we could release. Mm-hmm. And so if you're a church leader and you've been building to make people just fall in love with the Christian culture, that's kind of intuitive. It's like, that's what we do with everything else. Like my kids, when I raise my kids, I want them to be passionate. I'm not raising them to leave. I'm I'm raising them to be passionate and embody my values, right? I know they're going to leave, but I'm trying to prolong that as long as I can because I love them so much. So as a church leader, you almost have to work harder. Keep that in mind. You almost have to be super conscious about building to release and building to send because it's counterintuitive to who we are as leaders, because every other part in the world wants to build their own brand. Mm -hmm. A question that maybe you didn't ask that I'm thinking of is what is precipitating and and exasperating a post-truth culture? And it's truly digital transformation that's doing that. Keep in mind, our brains are wired by the thing that we access the most, period. It's scientific. And if you are accessing social media and people are, are doing it four to eight hours a day online, your brain is being neurologically rewired to seek information in that way. Um, it's no reason, it's no, there's no, it's no small coincidence that from web one to web two, web one was built for consumers, web two made us into publishers in that we had to do something with the content we took in. And now for four to eight hours a day, you're online doing something with what you take in. You're wired to do it when you sit in church. So the church had to create more of a externalizing publisher-based kind of model or ethic. Mm -hmm. Now with Web3 on the horizon, people are going to go from consumers to publishers to creators. They don't want to just take it in and do something with it, but they want to build something. And you have to understand Web3. And for those of you listening, like, what is Web3? <laughs> check, out the, check out the YouTube series that yep. we're posting on NextGen. It yep. t- explains it all. But Web3 is a third version of the internet that is going to transform how we think and how we take in information and how we do business and everything else. It's decentralized. Think metaverse, think NFTs, think Bitcoins. That don't People are it. thinking right now, I can't think of, I was trying to process everything that you just talked about. And now you just gave me all these other things to process. I'm so sorry. <laughs> but I'll say all that to say this. That kind of engagement in a Web3 world is going to make somebody go into the metaverse and they could say, I can build my own community around my truth. Mm-hmm. And you could have people who believe what you believe globally jump into your community within a metaverse. This is a small example of it, but it kind of talks about the whole impact. And then when I do that for four to eight hours a day, every reality I walk into, I'm going to expect them to embrace my version of truth. When those people come into church expecting to create their own spiritual reality. Mm. In five to seven years, we have to make sure we have those proper guardrails set up. God is setting us up to give us and giving us a greater hunger for theology in the capital C church today. That's to meet the need later on. Biblical literacy, cultural discernment. You have those guardrails up. You're going to be able to meet that need and help people to and guide them out of their truth into the one truth, which mm-hmm. is Jesus Christ. Yeah. That is kind of the whole thing. That's the whole wraparound from postmodernism to post-Christian to post-truth. That's why post-truth is going to really, that's where it's going to really hit a stride. And what the church can do is what we just talked about mm-hmm. through this whole podcast. Yeah, no, that's so good. And uh, if, if you tuned out there for a second to get your uh, brain wrapped around its, itself, um, welcome back. But um, <laughs> I, I love that you did that next gen series for people to watch on the yep. uh, River Valley Network YouTube page. And I love this conversation. And, and even, you know, last thought here, but the 
web one, web two, web three, I couldn't help as you you were di digesting that to think about even, there's a lot of negative that we think about that in the culture, but there's mm -hmm. actually a lot of positive when you look at, okay, in the church you have, hey, it was come hear the pastor preach. And then secondly, it's, hey, do your own thing. Lead a small group, lead a Bible study yep. at your work, lead it yep. at your school. And now it's, no, help to develop the framework and curriculum of how we do church, the how we do things, of it. totally. Yes. So I think there's a lot of a lot of people that are ready for this. For sure. That as if we can disciple them to help us build this, yeah. And then to our point, to help them build it in their new context, yeah. wherever you're sending them, uh, I think Dude. that's amazing. So, Pastor Terry, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. I love it. Uh, I'm I'm gonna have to re-listen to this episode a couple times to fi figure out everything that we talked about, but uh, it, was fun. it was fun. And I'm sure we'll have you back again soon. Check out the Next Gen series on YouTube, and we'll be back soon. I love it. Thank you. Mm -hmm.